Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 2003, the record industry was a ball of confusion. This giant invader from the north, technology. I'm looking at my guys saying, well, what do we do with this? Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. Her Majesty the Queen of England has two birthdays each year, and so does Apple in a way, at least in terms of celebrations and gift giving. Except it's the birthday boy giving the presents out, not the other way around. The company's Worldwide Developer Conference is one of the two annual events to which Apple fans flock, eyes moist with excitement. This year's WWDC saw the giving out of very few new products other than Apple's supposed Spotify killer, Apple Music. But it did ask for some of its toys from last year back to spruce them up a bit, give them a polish and some new features. We're to talk about now the next opportunity to transform the world. And that's the opportunity to bring native apps to the watch with a new version of watchOS. Mac OS X got polished. iOS 9 gained proper multitasking as it aims to push the iPad and the MacBook ever closer together. Several underlying programming technologies were unified across OS X and iOS, and another, Swift, was given away to the public as an open source programming language. More of that in the future, no doubt. And the Apple Watch was given the ability to run apps independently of an iPhone. Arguably something that should have been there from the start, but hey, there was no app store when the iPhone came out, so it probably doesn't matter. And there were some other important things for the UK. We're to become the second country in which Apple Pay is officially a thing. With the grand momentum of Apple Pay in the US, we are now excited to announce that we're bringing Apple Pay to the UK. We are also thrilled that our customers will be able to commute and pay for their fares on the London transportation system with Apple Pay. From July, our iPhones become Oyster Cards in London. You can pay for your coffee in Starbucks with your Apple Watch and other goods in other places like Lidl, M&S, The Post Office, Liberty, McDonald's, Boots, Costa Coffee, Waitrose, Pret, BP Garages, Subway, Wagamama, KFC, Spa, Nando's, New Look, June, and thank God, JD Sports. Where would we be without being able to pay for things in JD Sports with our wrists? You'll need a bank that's shacked up with Apple, such as First Direct, HSBC, NatWest, Nationwide, Bank of Scotland, Santander, and Ulster Bank. Not part of this club? Do not fear. You can spend money from your watch in the autumn when Bank of Scotland, the Halifax, Lloyds Bank, MS Bank, and TSB join up. Now you'll notice there's no Barclays. Sadly, to quote Noel Edmonds, there's no deal from that banker. At least, not yet. Now, in the epic march towards a cashless Britain, and indeed recent studies have shown more purchases are made in the UK without cash than with, by a small but notable margin, Apple's decision to turn its phones into credit and debit cards here is a timely one. 40% of smartphones in Britain are made by Apple, meaning somewhere near. 40% of all smartphone users in Britain can replace their wallet with their phone, unless they're with Barclays or don't like Pret. But is Britain ready to pay for their travel through London's transport network using a watch instead of cards or cash? I sat snugly next to a waterfall with pigeons bathing in it with Ars Technica UK's editor Sebastian Anthony. 
the pigeons weren't bathing with him. He was sat next to me on the grass. And he had a particularly interesting observation. I realised that most people being right-handed, they wear their Apple Watch on their left wrist. And the underground turnstiles are on the right-hand side. And I don't know if you've ever... <laughs> I, I, I tried this the other day because, you know, I just wanted to see how comfortable it was. And it's quite hard to reach over and hit this, the touchpad with your left wrist. Um, so putting that aside, um, I think paying for stuff with your Apple Watch is actually quite cool. Um, actually against Apple Pay on the iPhone is that you have to put your finger on the Touch ID sensor before you can buy something, um, which may be convenient but also again if you imagine you're on the underground um, you don't particularly want to hold your phone it's almost more clumsy to have to put your thumb on the button instead of just swiping an oyster card for example you might uh, you'd be more inclined to drop your phone maybe or I honestly I haven't tried but I suspect it would be harder than using a contactless card I also asked Sebastian his view on the Apple watch getting native apps apps that can run just on the watch with no help from an iPhone when the iPhone first came out, it had no app store. A little while later, Apple did add the ability to download native apps on the phone. And now companies like Uber, which is valued at somewhere between 40 and $50 billion, billion with a B, exist exclusively because of mobile apps. But are native apps what the watch needs? Until we have a new input paradigm, so something that's better than a keyboard, um, I don't think wearables will really take off. Um, I think until we have something, I mean, people laugh when I say this, but until we have something like brain implants that can allow us to input stuff without a keyboard in a reasonable fashion without having to talk out loud. I was going to say, I mean, surely that's just voice. I, everyone said that when Siri first came out and it turns out that people aren't too keen on talking to Siri as they walk down the street. Um, maybe some people are, maybe I'm in the minority there. Um, I am voice recognition is pretty good now, um, a lot better than it used to be. Today we're announcing Apple Music, the next chapter in music, and I know you are going to love it. Let's take a deeper look at Apple Music and what it means for the UK's music fans. On the surface, it's Apple's Spotify. A hundred countries will get access to the entire iTunes store for a subscription fee rather than paying per album or song. And we're launching in over a hundred countries later this month with iOS 8.4 for your iPhone, iPod Touch and iPad, as well as a new version of iTunes for the Mac, a new version of iTunes for Windows, and Android is coming this fall. That includes the ability to download the songs for offline playback. There's no free streaming option though, which is arguably one of the main differences between Apple Music and Spotify. 50 million of Spotify's users do not pay for Spotify, but 25 million now do, according to numbers Spotify released in the wake of Apple's event. Spotify works hard to bring users in on free accounts and convert them up to being paying customers. It works well. The problem is perhaps that the ones who do pay may be tempted by Apple's service for one of a number of reasons, and those free users Spotify has pushed to the brink of paying for music may finally be tempted to swan dive over the edge, but into Apple's Atlantic, not Spotify's Baltic. I wanted to talk more about Apple Music, and one of my favourite people to discuss this with, and here discuss such topics, is CNET.com's senior editor, Luke Westaway, a technology expert and Apple commentator. 
I asked him if we're beginning to see a real change in what Apple is trying to be seen as as a company with the launch of something like Apple Music. Under uh, Jobs, Apple was always comfortable being a niche company. It was it was happy to be the the smaller computer provider, the one with the the smaller operating system share. And now it feels like I, I, do, I, I do think Steve Jobs, I started it off on this trajectory, but it feels like now Tim Cook is trying to sort of run it over the goal line towards this complete world filling every single need catered for uh, sort of organization. Apple clearly wants to be a big part of how you enjoy music. And I think further down the line, it's inevitable that we're going to see more moves from Apple into the, the TV world. That's something we've been waiting for for years now is a real radical upgrade to Apple TV. And I think the reason we've had to wait so long is that they're planning something as big as Apple Music. And I think if you look at what they've done with uh, Apple Music, they've looked at Spotify and other services like that, and they've really, really bided their time. It's classic Apple. They wait for someone else to do it, and they figure out what's working and what doesn't. They let someone else make the mistakes, and then they swoop in with a higher profile, glossier, more accessible version. And I think that's what we're going to see them do with TV as well. I think they're looking right now at Netflix. Um, They're looking at sort of HBO's streaming service, and they're letting everyone else sort of uh, puzzle it out and figure out the right way it should be done. And then they're going to swoop in with their own thing. And I don't think that's especially noble or innovative, but I think it might work for them in terms of making huge amounts of money. Money is the key topic. Spotify will tell you that it has paid more than $3 billion in royalties and including more than $300 million in the first three months of 2015 alone. In fact, those were the exact words from a press release it issued after Apple Music's debut. It's not just about how much a service costs. Streaming services need to pay labels and artists fairly, and Spotify's success has meant it gets the hot seat when it comes to how much musicians can make from free or paid-for music services. Spotify's choice to comment on payments and royalties is a clear indication that it's this issue it expects Apple Music will use in its PR to get artists and subscribers on board with its new music service. Was Spotify's success with free ad-supported streaming ultimately a shot in its own foot in the long term? I don't think they made a mistake in offering a free service. I think that as the sort of pioneer in music streaming, they had to. That was how they got people in, myself included. When I saw what Spotify was offering, and it was like, well, free music, what, what is the catch? And you sort of get on board with it. And I started paying for Spotify because it just seemed to me good value. And I, I still think that it's, it's good value. But what Apple's done is waited for the sort of streaming status quo to be that people are expected to pay. I think this expectation that, that of, of free streaming music is slightly going away and what Spotify did is is it let loads of people on to the free bus the free music bus and then it sort of started making the bus less and less comfortable I'm going to wear this analogy thin all the while saying why don't you hop on to the more deluxe bus it's more like a speedboat and 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 you know they they started out by sort of uh, you know there were ads and the ads were annoying but you kind of put up with them and then they restricted the number of times you could stream any one song and that became very frustrating as well and in the end I was just sort of nudged on to the, the 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 paid for service and Apple's now coming in at a point where many people who use Spotify expect to pay where many people who don't use Spotify but know what it is have forgotten that there used to be like a, a, a free service and um, yeah I, I think that they have benefited from the fact that Spotify has worked very very hard to create a world where people expect to pay for streaming music. So what has Spotify got to keep people interested despite Apple's potential appeal? 
The only thing that uh, Spotify can offer that Apple Music initially doesn't really seem to be going for is a free version. So I wonder if Spotify is going to sort of try and regress, hunker down and make more of the fact that it does offer a free option. But I don't think that would be a particularly smart move because Spotify's whole business model relies on getting people to start paying for it. Sebastian Anthony from Ars Technica UK had another point about Apple Music that may also have Spotify nervous. I was very surprised that Apple Music will be available in 100 countries at launch. I thought that was notable because Spotify has been crawling along for eight years now, I think, nine years, um, and is still not available in 100 territories, I don't think. Um, To launch Apple Music, the family account for $15 for six people in 100 countries, worldwide in one go Um, that was quite impressive Um, but I also thought it was notable that Apple spent 45 minutes talking about a new consumer product at a developer conference. I did ask Spotify for a comment on this issue as well um, but it hadn't got back to me at the time I recorded a day or so later but if it does get back to me before next week I'll include that comment on a future episode. So for the UK, we need to wear our smartwatches on our other wrists when we pay for travel using our cash-free hands. And we need to think of the children, the musicians' children, that is, before choosing a premium music streaming service. Sorted. We now know all we need to know forever. Until the 30th of June, when Apple Music goes live, that is. So let's move on to hardware, iOS, Macs, and the seemingly inevitable convergence of laptop, church, and slate iOS 9 brings all sorts of multitasking, picture-in-picture, even an effective cursor mode for the iPad. On iPad, we have slide over, so you can bring apps in from the side, you can tap and enter split view for simultaneous live two apps up, and of course, picture-in-picture. Wasn't the iPad meant to pretty distinctly be different to a laptop? Is the iPad cannibalizing the Mac? Take it away, Luke Westaway. I'm sure that Apple is not trying to cannibalize the Mac. I think if you imagine, and actually there's a very, very easy visual metaphor for this, because when the iPad was announced, we saw it on stage behind Steve Jobs. We had a big picture of a laptop and a big picture of an iPhone, and between them was the word iPad, and that was always the vision that it was going to be more than your phone, but uh, less than your laptop, the sort of perfect, perfect halfway house. But we've seen sales for the iPad decline as phones get bigger and so the, the the line between the laptop and the phone is just getting more and more blurred so apple's response has been to nudge the ipad closer towards the computer side of things i don't think it really has to worry too much about people buying an ipad instead of a mac but what it suggests to me is that actually while for ipad owners there are some great new features coming Longer term, this might be a sign that actually tablets are not here forever. They are not going to be a sort of permanent new addition to the tech lexicon. That you know, that they 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 occupied a space that definitely existed, and we've just seen laptops get so much skinnier and more portable and better and more iPad-like, and phones get bigger and and more powerful and more tablet-like. And for me, while Everyone seems to be hailing iOS 9 on the iPad as, 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 as really, really great. And for end users, definitely it is. What it says to me is that actually Apple may be sort of running out of ways to spin this whole tablet notion. I asked Sebastian Anthony from Ars Technica UK about iPad and MacBook convergence too. Tim Cook, he famously said something a couple of years ago about how they were never going to converge the iPad and the MacBook. They said because uh, Microsoft was converging with Windows 8 
people they didn't seem to know the difference between smartphones and tablets and laptops or they wanted people to ignore the differences and at the time tim cook said you know these two devices are always going to be separate um, and now here we are and ios 9 finally brings in split screening and there's the incessant rumor that the ipad pro is going to come and it does seem like apple is encouraging some convergence here um they definitely don't seem to be downplaying Bluetooth keyboards and those cases that allow you to use your tablet like a laptop. Um, when you factor in other rumors that MacBooks might be going towards ARM processors and features in OS X that look like uh, they started in OS, OS, iOS, like Launchpad. Is it called Launchpad? Yeah, it's Launchpad. Yeah, it does seem like there's convergence going on there, but then you have to ameliorate that with Tim Cook's comments about them never converging. And as a device company um, or a hardware company, Apple definitely doesn't stand to gain from convergence. They would rather sell you an iPhone, an iPad, a laptop. But also, they clearly don't want to miss out on changing trends. So if tablets start to peak, they want to have the best smartphone. So maybe that's what the iPhone 6 Plus is all about. But then if laptops start to peak or PCs in general, then obviously they want to have a tablet that is ready to fill that gap, which could be a split screening iPad Air 2 or an iPad Pro. What's weird is that Apple seems to be moving the iPad and Macs closer together, despite seeing how disastrous Microsoft's attempt to do so was with the first Surface tablets running Windows 8. Obviously, that was only one way to do so. Maybe Microsoft just did it wrong. You wouldn't say all attempts to produce a crossbreed are bad after trying to breed, say, a chimp with a miniature schnauzer. No, you'd simply remove the chimp and replace it with a terrier, much more likely to result in happy offspring. Microsoft, according to Sebastian, eventually learned this too. Surface 3 and Surface 3 Pro are finally good products, which I think I actually spoke to Microsoft about this recently, that they've always been so defensive about their products because they're hyper aware that the macbook air is if you've seen all their uh all their literature it's always comparing the surface to the ipad uh, to the macbook air and now with the surface 3 and the surface 3 pro they finally have this tablet laptop laplet that can stand on its own it is a viable product i've used it it's a it's it really is good um and suddenly they have this good product and i think everyone's a bit surprised people are using this surface and they are happy with it. Uh, they're pleased with it. Um, it's not quite as good as a laptop, um, not quite as good as a tablet, but it fulfills different needs. And then on the other hand, you have Apple, who again said they would never do a converged product, but clearly they are going towards convergence. Um, another good example is a continuity versus continuum. So Apple announced continuity, which is this handoff thing between uh, Apple products so your phone is near your laptop and it can pick up calls and then Microsoft turned around and did a thing called Continuum which is where your Surface has a, a tablet interface um, when it's in tablet form and then you plug in a keyboard and it turns into a laptop interface. So let's assume iOS 9 makes iPads better and OS 10 El Capitan makes next-gen MacBooks great. Is that going to be what people want? And does that make them want more iPads or more thin and light MacBooks? Apple has this problem with the iPad in that people don't need to 
uh, upgrade it. An old iPad works just as well as the new ones. They also have other problems. Like I think people are more likely to give iPads to family members or friends when they get bored of them. So that's one. That's a sale that Apple misses out on. Um, but they are aggressively, I think, pushing for upgrades with iOS 9 because some of the new features that you get are not coming to everything. So you get the the slide over uh, feature, which lets you sort of pop in a secondary app on just on the edge. That's not come. That's only coming to the newer um, iPads. And then the actual full screen multitasking is only going to be available on the iPad Air 2, I think. Now, I can't quite believe that that is the only iPad capable of running two apps um, you know, simultaneously on screen. So I think that that is a sign that Apple is um, artificially trying to generate reasons to upgrade. I, th- I think that's the, the tack they're taking with the iPad. They're saying people are not buying these fast enough. We need to, we need to create some reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've used Android on, you know, on tablets and on phones. I, I'm very, very familiar with Android and there is loads and loads to like about it. But there, Google feels like it's just slightly missing opportunities. So, for example, one thing that iOS 9 brings is a more proactive Siri. And people have rightly said, hang on, you're just talking about what uh, Google Now does and has been doing for years. And that's an Android feature that has been around for a long time. But it's not an Android feature that I think many Android phone owners are even aware is on their device. I think it's the kind of thing you accidentally swipe up and conjure and you're like, oh, what's this? How do I get rid of it? Which actually happens quite a lot on Android, I found. There are lots and lots of different sort of things that you don't really want or cluttering up the screen and trying to grab your attention. But Android and, and, and Google is the company that should be getting that right because they are all about data. They are much more all about data than Apple. Um, they have all of, all of your personal data through search. They have your email. They have maps. They have everything. And they have all of that raw data to work with to create a personal assistant. Uh, you know, they could, they, they, they could be using uh, you know, that data to, to make more capable voice search. And, and, and they are. But it, it doesn't really feel to me like Google is making the best use of its data because, you know, Google now should be the perfect amalgamation of all of Google's data resources and it just doesn't feel useful. So I don't think that Apple's alternative is going to be any more useful, but it feels like for a couple of years now, um, Android has not been capitalizing on what Google has, which is that huge amount of of data at, at its disposal. And it's been letting iOS um, basically do the same thing, but a bit glossier, which I think is what people want. So that's WWDC 2015 and what it means for the UK. But what does it mean for you? Email me on podcast at natelangston.com or tweet at textmessagepod and let me know for next week's episode. Please don't forget to tell your friends about the show or your colleagues if you've enjoyed what you've heard on Text Message today. Always appreciate new listeners and your word from your mouth is the best support we can get to make the show more successful in future. Thank you to my guests, Sebastian Anthony, editor of Ars Technica UK and Luke Westaway, senior editor at CNET.com. I'm off to a metal festival. Toodle pip.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.